from Podcast One. This is a Target USA special report. The anatomy of a Russian attack on the U.S. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. This is part three of our four-part special report series, Anatomy of a Russian Attack on the U.S. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered operatives to interfere in the U.S. 2016 presidential election. A Target USA investigation that began in November of 2016 examined how the attack happened, when it started, who was involved, and what lay ahead. We conducted dozens of interviews in the U.S. and abroad with current and former U.S. intelligence officials, members of Congress, cybersecurity and intelligence experts, foreign government officials, Russian nationals, and American victims. Previously on Target USA, Mark Warner, Senator from Virginia, Vice Chairman of the Intelligence Committee, explained exactly how Russia's campaign worked. Specifically what Russia did, they started a campaign where they hacked into private individual accounts, both parties' accounts, Democrats and Republicans, but decided to only release information that was harmful to the Democratic candidate Clinton. Somewhere mid-spring to summer, the Russians changed from saying they just wanted to sow chaos to where they decided they'd rather see Trump over Clinton. So the first was the selective hacking of information and letting that information then be released at critical times. The second part of their campaign, which was even more sophisticated, was using modern technology, using the internet, so-called internet trolls, where they would pay people, and they worked across Russia and parts of Eastern Europe, who would go out and create fake Twitter accounts or fake Facebook accounts, or actually create, capture computer networks called botnets. So if you capture a group of computers, they're called a botnet. If you take create fake accounts, they're called bots. And then, though they would use those that fake accounts to, in effect, flood the zone with false news, fake information. And the results of this were that when there's been data scientists that have shown that in certain areas, for example, in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, for example, the last 10 days of the campaign, you wouldn't hear stories about Clinton versus Trump if you were getting the news from Twitter feed or from a Facebook news feed. There would be so many people hitting those uh, regional accounts that what would happen would be the top stories that would come up on your news feed would be stories about Hillary Clinton being sick or Hillary Clinton stealing money from the State Department. And, and it really 
was a, a remarkable campaign. You heard Warner mention troll houses. Now, in this episode, we learn exactly how Russia's troll operation works. Former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers connects the dots for us. But before we get to that part of this episode, on December 10th, 2014, it was our last interview with Mike Rogers as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, and he said something very interesting. Are we back in another Cold War? We don't have to be. Uh, But we do need to show that the United States is still a world power that's willing to take leadership roles around the world, uh, including pushing back uh, when countries like Russia try to expand their sphere of influence, not just by uh, diplomatic means, but by military means. So 20% of Georgia, the state uh, country of Georgia, is occupied by the Russians. Uh, They're not giving that back. Uh, Crimea is now part of Russia, uh, and they are causing much mischief. Uh, in eastern Ukraine, and they're doing that through violent acts. It would be a great time for the United States to begin pushing back uh, on Russia. Uh, You know, some public uh, reports on their uh, moving away from the the, the nuclear treaty, Uh, even their their discussions publicly about moving away is very, very, very concerning. Them using energy as as a weapon all of that is concerning, and part of the reason is they don't feel that there's anything pushing back in a real and unified way. We need to regain that. And again, we do that, then we can get through our issues. We don't have that. They're going to use that opportunity to fill that hole. Mike Rogers, House Intelligence Committee Chairman. That was our last interview with him in his official role on December 10th, 2014. There are those that say no real pushback against Russia was the reason why they felt emboldened to do what they did in the 2016 election and the run-up to it. But exactly how did they do it? We know that it was multifaceted. We know that they employed people, they employed technology, and they employed tactics that were all essentially updated from what the Soviet Union did back during the Cold War. And so for some insight on how that modern-day boiler room operation works, we went back to Mike Rogers for another interview earlier this year. So what would happen in a normal course of a day is they would hire these troll factories. We would know them in the old days as boiler rooms uh, in the FBI. And these folks had a certain mission, and they would go 24 hours a day. In the cases that have been publicly reported, they talk about 12-hour shifts. And in those shifts, they're given a certain number of posts that they have to do. So they would go out and actively look uh, at sites that they believed, they being the Russians, uh, would believe would have some impact on people's opinion of either a person uh, or an idea or a policy and or uh, could be a candidate for office uh, and or the way you may or may not want to vote. And so they would look at those, and each person would be assigned, say, 135 posts. Uh, the one that I saw uh, had to have uh, 200 uh, characters per post, and that would be the equivalent of this one 12-hour shift. And so every day these people are posting, it looks like your neighbor, it looks like your friend, uh, it looks like the guy down the street or a work colleague, 
but it is these troll, ar- troll armies who are purposely posting things that are either favorable to someone like uh, the Russian Federation or unfavorable to people who are not favorable to the Russian Federation. How do you think it's playing out against, against the U.S.? We've heard a lot about an active measures campaign. How big of a part of this active measures campaign is this process? I think it's significant, and I think uh, when um, you know the the, the uh, Russian defense minister decided to create an information information warfare division of of the military, uh, that was a sure sign that they believed that this kind of an information operation campaign had some big impact, and so they took all of their cyber actors and are combining them in this one information warfare center and talked openly about. Propaganda is a part of what they do, and they're going to be smart and effective uh, in the way that they use it, in their words, to protect uh, the defense of of the Russian Federation. What are the Russians trying to gain here? I think an advantage. And so if you look at what they were trying to do really for the last 70 years, they've used information operations in the past. Just think of now they have this whole new tool in their toolkit, which is information uh, excuse me, which is social media. And we watch them do it in Latin America. We watch them do it uh, across Europe and other places around the globe where they tried to sow chaos. They tried to bring in doubt and, and, uh, and interject dissension among groups uh, in a particular country because that chaos is where their intelligence services, their ability to influence the outcome thrives. And so We've never really seen them this aggressively work in the United States uh, to try to make sure that they could sow that dissension. And candidly, this really wasn't uh, people who hear that will immediately think, oh, it was for Trump or against Trump. They need to take that off the table. They, they hoped to sow dissension. And candidly, they've been very, very good at it. We're still fighting over this whole thing that was really caused by Russian information operations uh, in a way that caused distrust and dissension uh, again, amongst Americans of the same party, of different parties, uh, you know, all of us. And so to that regard, they thought it was highly successful. Again, that's why uh, the the uh, Russian defense minister came out and said, you know what, this has worked. We think it's so so impactful. We're going to create our own military unit that does this. And that's what I think they hope to get out of. You'll see it more in other elections, I believe. You'll see it in places like Latin America where they hope to score some points. Uh, and again, so dissent, so uh, people um, having some doubt about their electoral process. How much is known about this military unit? Well, it's it's fairly new, but what they did do is is take it from other pieces around both military and intelligence. And so I think what you'll see is the same kinds of capability we have seen in the past. They're just going to have a dedicated unit with a dedicated commander. Think Cyber Command for the United States, except they have this nefarious duty of of doing these information operations through it. And so I, we, we know the capabilities. We know what their, uh, the uh, technologies are. We think we know what the intentions are. I think there's a lot uh, more to be learned on that. But again, this is a pretty new unit. So I think we're going to see more of what we've seen in the past, not less. How does the U.S. combat it? Well, I think, first of all, we, there needs to be a public discussion about what the Russian capabilities are 
what are they doing on social media, and what are their intentions? The more that we have a public discussion about what those things are, it's easier to start thwarting their ability to do what they do. Uh, and I think that there's going to be a, uh, necessarily an offensive cyber plan to counteract what we would know at the time being these bot armies operating in country X or country Y that we can clearly show that is is being funded or paid for by the Russian government. When you look at uh, where the U.S. is right now, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of dissension, and there is a very clear situation where it seems like the Russians won this round. Is that, ca- is that the case? Well, y- yes. I mean, I do believe that they, uh, you know, they think this is a wild victory. Now, is it big enough to bring down the United States? I don't believe it. Uh, But it has caused political dissension in a way I haven't seen. And they believe that their efforts work. They believe that they're winning. And so that's, again, why they created the unit, why they're so smug around the world, why they're taking the actions that they are around the country. The current situation with the current administration, there appears to be connections, there appears to be a, a, a whole lot of unanswered questions about the relationship. Was this a goal of the Active Measures campaign from your perspective? I, I think it was so sent against Americans and the political party, and certainly it has caused some dysfunction in the Trump administration. I mean, they're having to deal with this and deal with the conversations of it. Some of it is their own doing, of course, the way they've handled it. But also the Russians love this. They love the fact um, that there's any doubt whatsoever, that we have Democrats saying it wasn't elected and, and Vladimir Putin was standing in the voting booth with you when you made your vote, of course. And so all of that and all of that sharp-edged po- uh, politics feeds on what the Russians were trying to accomplish, which was, again, you know, dissension, lack of confidence in the electoral po- uh, process, all of those things. Um, and to that end, they were they were a bit successful. Mike Rogers, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Chairman Rogers, thanks. Got it. Thank you, sir. We're going to take a short break. But when we come back, there is another element that we haven't discussed that's involved in Russia's meddling operation here in Washington. It involves your mobile phone and their ability to intercept everything you say and everything you hear and everything you type and everything you read. Essentially, everything that takes place on your mobile phone is at risk. Coming up on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. This is a special report, Anatomy of a Russian Attack, and it's the third in a series of four reports digging into how Russian intelligence planned and executed the 2016 election meddling operation. Much of it, as you heard before the break from former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Rogers, was conducted using troll farms. But the operation, based on what we know, also employed a vast array of secret operatives, hackers, trolls, bots, criminal enablers, all of which were supported by the top leadership of the Russian government. And one of their tools is believed to be something called an Imsi catcher. What is that, you say? Stay with me, and I'll explain it to you. Your mobile phone has a SIM card inside of it, and that card has a unique number assigned to it, It's called an International Mobile Subscriber Identity, or IMSI, 
It's used to identify the user of a cellular network. It's different from your phone number, but every bit is important in tracking your mobile phone. And your phone can be tracked by police, intelligence agencies, hostile nation states, of course, and anyone who can afford the technology. They use devices known as IMSI catchers to trick cell phones into thinking they've logged into a real cell network or a cell tower. But in reality, the signals have been hijacked. In 2014, Ashkan Sultani and Craig Timberg of the Washington Post wrote a piece about this activity in Washington. In researching their story, they went out with a surveillance expert and identified 18 MZ catchers in Washington, D.C. So using their map, we, back then, tracked down where these devices are located. And curiously, one of them was located very near the Russian Cultural Center. That doesn't mean it was located in the Russian Cultural Center, but it was very close. Even though we've been investigating this story for about 10 months, and it's September 30th, 2017, we began looking into the phenomenon of Imzy catchers, or stingrays as they're commercially known, or kingfishers, three years ago. And we tracked down the person that was featured in that Washington Post article, who actually went out and did the tracking. His name is Aaron Turner from Integracell, and Aaron is with us today to explain how Russians could and may have used this technology to gather intelligence to help them build their operation. So Aaron, thanks for taking time to talk with us. You and the Washington Post writers went out on sort of a tour of the city and you found 18 locations where there was some kind of suspicious surveillance targeting mobile phones, uh, mobile devices. So were those full-blown uh, interceptors, or were they simply tracking numbers from phones? Um, explain to us how that, that, that part of the situation worked and what that number 18 meant. That was a mix of everything. A subset of those 18 were full-blown interceptors. Uh, and so the the majority of those were MZ catchers, right? Basically just doing tracking um, and, and tracing of individuals. Um, a subset of those were full-blown interceptors. So what is it that the Russian embassy or any other embassy or any other organization that used one of those, what is it that they could be doing with that? Well, any organization that is concerned about their physical security would probably want to be running a cellular interceptor. And uh, so whether it's our embassy or their embassy or whoever, you use that cellular intelligence to understand what's going on around you. Um, in the 2003 to 2006 timeframe, in the Middle East, for example, it was a preferred tactic for uh, terrorists to basically detonate their IEDs using cellular signals. And so there was a lot of research and development put into setting up cellular detection capabilities to look for those signatures that if someone had set up a cellular-based IED, that you could prevent that IED from blowing up by intercepting that cellular signal before the, the command made it to the IED. So it makes good tactical security sense to have an interceptor set up at a, a high value location like an embassy. And so that's one of the reasons why you do it. You would also do it to, to listen to the conversations for those around if someone's trying to plan an attack or if uh, someone is trying to leak information. So there, there's all sorts of reasons why a high security organization would want to have a cellular interceptor at a high value location like an embassy. So for people walking by the Russian embassy or any other embassy, with a phone, 
um, and, or people driving by, what's the risk to them that their conversation uh, or their uh, activities on their phone could be picked up and seen? So from an operator perspective, when you're actually operating the interceptor, when you move from tracing someone with the MZ catcher to a full intercept, that's a, an expensive process. It takes time. It takes computing power. And so most of the time when you're running an interceptor, you're not just capturing everybody's communications. You have a list of targets that you're after. And if one of those targets walk by, then you bring them into your intercept net. But if they're not in your target list, you'll probably just keep track of who walked by and they'll be in your track and trace list, but not necessarily in your intercept list. And so if someone walks by with their phone and they're just a mere mortal and they're not someone who has anything to do with a national security role or something like that, then the operator of that MZ catcher would just keep track of, oh, this person walks by usually at 9 a.m. or 4 p.m. or whatever, and they'll keep track of that on their track and trace list, but they wouldn't necessarily move that into their full intercept. When you look around Washington, D.C., when you look at what is uh, blown up in recent months to be a very full uh, active measures campaign by the Russian government uh, with numerous people inside Washington, uh, now understanding that some of the things that took place several years ago, including including, uh, emails, systems being hacked, um, there have been some journalists that have talked about the, that, that they've noticed anomalies and, and unusual activities. Uh, when you pair all that up with the use of one of these uh, MZ catchers or the full-blown stingray type scenario situation in Washington, what's your view, what's your, what's your thought on what you think is at play here in Washington these days considering the capabilities of these kinds of devices? So over the last four years, my company has gone around the world and done surveys as far as what is the integrity of the cellular network. And we've set up sensors to understand where people are being listened to. And during the course of that, we we basically did analysis to understand if there's sensitive information that's being transmitted by an individual, how much of that information is over email versus how much of it is over a text message. And what we found was that Uh, when it is a short-term sort of uh, high-priority request or or bit of high-priority information, there's a greater tendency for people to send that over an SMS message rather than email because they – people's perception is that SMS has a faster response time and it sort of, you know, beats the path to the individual faster. And so I think – If I were running a a full um, intelligence gathering operation against a high-value target – I would perceive a very high value and a high return on my investment of setting up an SMS interceptor close to that individual's place of work because they're there from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and they're probably sending and receiving SMS messages that I'm probably not going to get the information that if I have uh, control over their email account. And so SMS interception is very complementary uh, to email interception and email capture. And so I, I would view sort of both of them to be used together if I were the person running that intelligence operation. So based on what you know, what you've seen, your investigation, the one with the Washington Post and everything else you've been able to digest about what took place uh, during the run up to the election and after the election, what's your view uh, about Russia, Russia's capabilities and the concerns here in Washington? 
So from my perspective, when it comes to cellular interception and analysis capabilities, the Russians are on par with the other major players in this area. The Chinese, the Israelis, the French, um, you know, those are folks who all have what I would call, you know, standard nation state grade uh, intercept capabilities. And because of the. And this is in Washington. I'm, I'm sorry, what's that? You think this is in Washington as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, that, there's nothing that would prevent someone from standing up uh, a cellular intercept capability um, and, and using it for their own benefit, whether it's to eavesdrop on government officials or business people or whatever. Um, I'm currently involved in an investigation where a, a U.S.-based business believes that a European Union uh, country's regulators has been intercepting their phone calls um, as, as part of a, a European Union regulatory investigation. And so, you know, the, the, the barrier to entry to deploying this equipment is very low. You, know, you can get a an entry level cellular interceptor for under seventy five thousand dollars now that does a very good job and doesn't require a lot of technical expertise to run, and so when when you think about that low barrier of entry and someone wants to gain information and because so much information flows over cellular, why wouldn't you make that investment? Okay, so I interrupted you. You were about you were talking that you were saying that Russia was on par with other nation states and other organizations that engage in that kind of thing. Finish your thought, please, about the the Russian situation here in Washington. I don't perceive them as being any more or less active in this area than others, uh, based upon the the data that we've collected from sensors, based upon other things that are going on. I don't think that there's any sort of smoking gun that would say, "Oh dear, we need to be more concerned about the Russians than others." We we need to be concerned about the the integrity of our cellular networks overall. And there are a whole bunch of actors who are very, very motivated to take advantage of the integrity problems in the cellular network. And so I think we need to focus on this as an overall policy aspect, not to name one particular actor and say, hey, let, let's let's chase after them. The, the, we, we're facing an overall uh, ecosystem problem here that needs to be addressed uh, at a larger level than just naming one actor. That's Aaron Turner, founder and CEO of IntegraCell, and he's done some great work, and we'll be hearing from him again soon on this program. Thank you, Aaron. All right, thank you. And by the way, Aaron launched a new company in August of 2017. It's called Gravewell, and that company offers a new platform for today's data analysis needs. We promised when we started this podcast series, Anatomy of a Russian Attack on the U.S., that we would drill down into the details. We would start from the very basic and dig down into the most technical details of how they did it. And we've done that on this program, specifically with this last information. So, to conclude this podcast series, we're going to close the loop and go back to our original premise, which was the intelligence community in a high-confidence assessment, determined that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered a vast array of operatives to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And in the process of our research, which goes back more than 10 months from this date, September 30th, 2017, we've determined that it was much more than just the election that Russia was meddling in that Russia was manipulating. And that essentially, in the minds of intelligence officials we spoke to, has eroded the trust between the two countries. It had already been on shaky ground for a number of years, but now it's worse than ever. We spoke to a number of U.S. intelligence leaders about this problem. One of them was Robert Cardillo. He's director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. 
and he's not very optimistic at this point about the U.S. relationship with Russia. Russia has on a number of occasions claimed things. We've spoken about Syria in the past that have taken place in Syria that didn't happen. Or, for instance, or tried... Crimea or Ukraine, indeed. Yeah. Or tried to claim something that the U.S. had done indeed. and tried to claim claim responsibility or credit for it. What does that tell you? It tells me that our job is going to be harder. He explains in a crystal clear fashion exactly what he means. And we're going to hear as well from Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General at the Justice Department. If anybody interferes with our elections, no matter who it may be, I think it's appropriate for us to take action. And when there are criminal prosecutions that are justified, we need to pursue those criminal investigations. That's coming up next in our series, Anatomy of a Russian Attack. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents when it happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn it, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.